into sections based on the information which is contained in it, we would find that approximately one-third of what is talked about in the Qur'an is the oneness of God. The chapter begins, the first verse, saying, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Say, Allah is unique. The term Allah is in itself unique. Though it is translated as God. In fact, there is another term in Arabic which is used to refer to God. Ilah. But the term Allah is different from Ilah in the sense that the term Ilah, like the English term God, can be made plural. You can have God, Aliha, or you can have a goddess, Ilaha. You have Godson, Goddaughters, etc. Whereas in the case of the term Allah, it cannot be made plural, cannot be made feminine. It is not used in any kind of construction wherein it represents some part of God's creation. So this verse, the first of the four short verses of this chapter, the 112th chapter of the Qur'an, begins telling those who read the Qur'an, telling the Prophet who first received the Qur'an, may God peace and blessings be upon him, to pronounce to people, to proclaim to people that Allah is unique. He is, in the Arabic term, Ahad. Ahad, unique, being different from Wahid. Wahid, which means one in Arabic. Ahad goes beyond the concept of one. Because when we use the term one, I can say, for example, I have one ten, and you can have one ten. But when we use this term in reference to Allah, we're talking about a oneness which is a uniqueness. That is, that there is no other like Him. He is unique in all aspects. It means that He, God, does not have the attributes of His creation, nor does His creation have Because if he had the attributes of his creation, he would no longer be unique. And if his creation had his attributes, again, he would no longer be unique. Allah goes on to say in the Quran, in the second of these four short verses, Allah is Samad. Allah unique one God is the one on whom all things depend. 
This is an aspect of his uniqueness. That all of creation depends upon God. Whether the creation recognizes that it depends upon God or not, it still depends upon God. And it is because of this principle that worship belongs to God alone. This is part of the uniqueness of God. Since all things depend on Him, then any aspect of worship should go only to Him. Any and every aspect of worship should go to Him alone. This is based on the fact that He is the one on whom all things depend. Now, what this means is that the various religions which exist in the world, all of which in one way, shape, or form, is involved in the worship of what they believe to be God. However, when you get into the essence of these various religions, you will find that they are in fact worshipping God's creation. Though they claim to be worshipping, or the, those who worship believe that they are worshipping God. If we find a people worshipping a tree, we will say this worship of the tree is nonsense. It could not possibly bring them any good. However, those people who worship trees, and there are people still today in different parts of the world who worship various aspects of nature, if these people when they worship trees, sticks, rivers, if these people, when they worship nature, did not have any of their prayers answered, they would not continue to worship. For sure. They wouldn't continue to worship. They would go to find something else. So for sure, these people, when they worship nature, some of their prayers are answered. However, we, when we look at these unfortunate souls worshipping nature, will say, but it's not the tree that is answering your prayer. It is God. It's not the tree who is answering your prayer. It is God. If we look in India, where the majority of people are Hindus, and they worship God in the form of idols which take a variety of different shapes and images. If you ask the common people why are they worshipping the idols, they will hold that the idols answer their prayer. If you ask 
the intellectuals among them, or those who hold priestly positions, they will explain that they are not actually worshipping the physical idols that we see. They are worshipping Brahma, the world soul, the one God, who is present within these idols. However, in fact, what we see is that they are bowing down to these idols. And if we take another step and we look into Christianity and we ask Christians, why are you worshipping Jesus? A man. They will say, we're not worshipping Jesus, a man. We are worshipping God who was within Jesus, the man. Or, because there are a number of different explanations of this, they will say, we worship God who became a man. But in fact, what we see is that they are worshipping a man. When you come to Islam, what you find is that God is not represented within his creation in any way, shape, or form. God is worshipped without any kind of image. Because once you put an image to God, an image will be made up of what we have perceived, what we have seen. It will mean that then God becomes an aspect of his creation. So it is only in Islam that we find worship directed only to God alone, without any intermediary. He is the only one who can answer the prayers. He is the only one who does answer prayers. Therefore, he is the only one to whom prayers should be directed. The third verse of this short chapter, Lam Yalit Walam Yulat. He does not give birth, nor was he born. God here says that God does not give birth. In old English, it would be said, He does not beget, nor is He begotten. He doesn't give birth. Because the process of giving birth is an animal process. Animals give birth. Men who belong to the animal world, we give birth. It is an animal topic. God is not an animal. God is the creator of animals. So he does not give birth. And God began, began this verse with this concept, not giving birth, because this is an area in which most of the people who have gone astray in the worship of God 
have become deluded. In the mythology of the nation around the world, you will find the belief that somehow God gave birth, had sons. Sometimes these sons are half God, half men because God, you know, gave birth through uh, human beings. And this is the area, as I said, wherein a lot of people have become deluded into worshipping God's creation, believing that somehow some aspects of his creation have become a part of him. They are a product of him in the animal sense of giving birth. The second part of that verse, Walam Yulet, and he does and he is not born, or was not born, also deals with the concept of God being born. Once you say God is a son, God the son, you're talking about a God who was born. Again, God here negates this concept. God was not born. Because if God was born, that implies there is a time when God did not exist. And of course, this is inconceivable. God always was and always will be. This is one of his unique characteristics. There is no time when he wasn't. So, he is not born. And this small chapter, four verses, closes off, وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ And there is nothing like unto him. There is nothing similar to him. In this last verse, God reaffirms what has been said in the previous three verses, what is said in the very first verse. This is telling us that any time we describe God in ways which include the characteristics of his creation, such descriptions are in and of themselves incorrect. If we speak about God creating the world in six days and then resting on the seventh, we have made him like his creation, in need of rest. If we speak of God regretting doing certain things, again, we are making him like his creation. Furthermore, if we describe any aspects of his creation as having no beginning and no end, then this this concept is false, unacceptable, as it has been expressed, because God is the only being who has no beginning and no end. As such, when we look at the principle known as Einstein's theory of relativity, expressed in the formula E equals mc squared, or 
energy equals mass times the square of the speed of light, which in, in common terms is expressed as energy or matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That is, energy changes into matter and matter changes back into energy. And on the basis of this formula, the atom was split, the atomic bombs were created, uh, nuclear energy Nuclear energy is utilized by man in various parts of the world. However, from an Islamic point of view, this formula is false as it is expressed. Because if we say that energy or matter can neither be created nor destroyed, we are saying in fact that energy or matter is uncreated without beginning. This is God. God alone is uncreated without beginning. When we say it cannot be destroyed, we're also saying it is without end. And we know that God alone is without end. All else in his creation comes to an end. So, within an Islamic context, this formula may be utilized, but a qualifying statement has to be added to it. We say energy or matter can neither be created nor destroyed by man. We have to add that qualifying statement. Otherwise, the statement as it exists gives to God's creation the attributes of God. And it is on the basis of this principle that certain segments of the Muslim world have broken away from what we could call the orthodoxy. Because when we speak of Islam, Islam is one. There is only one Islam. Though it is common to hear people speak of Shiite Islam and Sunni Islam, you know, we see this in the newspapers, as if there are two versions of Islam. But in fact, there is only one Islam. The Islam as embodied in the Quran and in the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him. So when we go and we look at that 15 or 10 percent of the Muslim world which has been classified as Shiite Islam and we look into what are their beliefs are they in fact a part of the main body of Islam or have they deviated and broken away from the mainstream of Islam what we find is that it is fundamental within the beliefs of the Shiites that there are twelve individuals known as the twelve Imams who begin with Ali, the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad may Allah speak the blessing be upon him his son 
Hassan and his other son Hussein by the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, there are peace and blessings be upon him, and nine other children and grandchildren of Hussein. This makes up what is referred to among Shiites as the Twelve Imams. And it is basic to their belief that belief in the Imams is something which is so essential that if one does not hold this belief, one is in fact not a true Muslim. And this belief begins with the concept that the Imams are infallible. Infallible from birth to death. That is, they committed no errors from the time they were born till the time they died. Whether outwardly or inwardly, intentionally or unintentionally, they were free totally of any error. Now, this concept automatically is rejected by the main beliefs of Islam in that it is God alone who is infallible. God alone who is free from error. God's creation is subject to error. This is the reality. The Prophet Muhammad, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, has said that every descendant of Adam commits errors. But the best of them are those who turn frequently to God in repentance. So all human beings commit errors. And to say that any human being is free totally of error is to give the attributes of God to man. Furthermore, they say, as part of their belief, that these Imams knew the past, the present, and the future. In other words, they were omniscient. They had knowledge of all things. Again, this is a quality which belongs only to God. And so on. When you go through the various beliefs of the Shiites concerning the Imams, what you find is consistently they have given the quality of God to his creation. And that takes them out of mainstream Islam and as such they are not considered to be true Muslims as a, as a body. I mean, of course, we're not saying that for each and every individual because different people may hold different personal beliefs. But as a system, the system of Shiaism, as it is generally known, is, has deviated from mainstream Islam in that it has given the qualities of God to his creation. And again, this, of course, is the dividing point between any group which arises within the body of Muslims that claims in any way that any human beings have, for example, the ability to answer man's prayers. You have amongst some Muslims, or those who call themselves Muslims, some who hold that there are saints. There are humans who, having died centuries ago, are capable of answering our prayers. 
And so they made prayer to these individuals, believing that these individuals will carry their prayers to God or they will answer the prayers directly. Such beliefs take them out of Islam. Because, as I said in the very beginning, God is unique in that He alone is the one who can answer prayer. There are no intermediaries between God and man. I know, some people may say, well, you know, when you want to see the base commander, you can't just walk up, knock on his door and walk into his office. You have to go to see your captain. The captain will go and speak to the major, the major to the colonel, and the colonel will go and speak to the general. And if you follow that chain of command, then whatever you're seeking may be fulfilled. In the same way, if you want your prayers to be answered by God, you who are a dirty individual, covered in sin, committing sins all the time, how can you possibly expect to stand before God and expect your prayers to be answered? No. You must turn to some pure soul who you will call a saint. Who is close to God? And when you pray to this saint, because of his closeness to God, he can convey your prayers to God and your prayers will then be answered. Now, it may sound reasonably logical. However, given the Islamic concept of the uniqueness of God, it is false. Because, for one, you are making God like his creation, like the general. You can't go directly to God. But this is making God like his creation. Two, you are giving some of God's creation the ability to answer your prayers for you. For those who pray to saints, expecting them to answer their prayers. These acts are classified in Islam as acts of shirk or idolatry, paganism, where one is worshipping other than God. And this presentation was of necessity a short presentation because my time is very limited, I have to leave fairly shortly, so I wanted to give you all an opportunity to discuss, so I'm not going to prolong this uh, presentation much longer. I will just sum it up for those people who came late that what makes Islam different from all other religions is that its concept of God is a unique concept. It holds that God is unique in all of his aspects. He does not share his attributes with his creation. He does not have the attributes of creation, nor does the creation have his attributes. And to give him any of the attributes of creation is to make him less than God. Because this course some people will argue, well, don't you believe that God can do anything? Of course, we will normally say, yes, God can do anything. And then somebody will say to you, well, couldn't he have a son? Now, when we say that God can do anything, actually you have to qualify that. You can't just say, yes, God can do anything. No. We say God can do anything which 
is fitting with him being God, fitting with his divinity, which does not in any way compromise his being God, the unique. Because if you're going to open the door to God being anything, then you are caught in the philosopher's argument, which the philosophers like to throw on those who believe in God, that is, the philosophers who don't believe in God. They will ask those who believe in God, do you believe that God can make a stone which is too heavy for him to lift? Can God make a stone which is too heavy for him to lift? Well now if you said that God can do anything without any qualification, then you must admit that God can make a stone which is too heavy for him to lift. And once you admit that, then you are admitting that there is something, it is possible, there is something in creation, it's possible that God can create something which is greater than He. But one of the fundamental attributes of God is that He is the greatest. There is nothing greater than He. So, when we say that God can do anything, it is anything which is fitting with Him being God the greatest. So, from this concept, in Islam alone, we find that God is worshipped purely. In all other religions around the world, you will find that though the people who are worshipping in this religion believe that they are worshipping God, the fact is when you look at what it is they're actually worshipping, the fact is that they will be worshipping one or another aspect of God's creation. Either they'll be worshipping a tree and saying God is within the tree, or an idol saying God is within the idol, or an animal saying that God is within the animal, or a man saying that God is within the man. Only in Islam is God worshipped not through his creation, but worship alone, purely, in the purest possible sense. And that is the summary of this uh, evening's presentation on my part. And uh, inshallah, if you have any questions, there are some papers which have been passed out. Your questions may be written on there, and we will try to answer as much as we can within the next half an hour, inshallah. Jesus, we believe, 
who have been the religion of Islam. Islam meaning submission to the will of God. Jesus taught his companions to submit to the will of God. There are so many statements that can be extracted from the gospel where Jesus is quoted as saying, you know, it is not as I will, but as the Father will, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Variety of places where you find Jesus indicating to the people that it is not about man's will, but about submitting to the will of God. And as such, what he thought in essence is no different from the teachings of Islam as was taught by the last prophet Muhammad may Allah peace and blessings be upon him. question here, meditation is also one of the best ways of worshipping God, like prayers. Why Islam does not talk about meditation? Is it prohibited in Islam? Well, if we look at what is the essence of meditation, wherein one concentrates one's thoughts on a concept or a sound or an object, what we find is that within the Islamic prayer, the formal prayer, which is done five times a day, there is that concentration. However, it is not an extreme concentration to the point of becoming oblivious to the world around. Because Islam believes that worship is a part of and parcel of human life that when one is involved in worship of God, one should not extract oneself from the world in which one lives. So, though there are meditational aspects in the worship, man is still required to be conscious of the world around him. Uh, there are many Muslims around the world who do not know how to read the Quran in Arabic. And because of this, they cannot pray alone to observe the five times prayer, obligatory prayers, except on Friday, where there is an Imam who leads the congregational prayer. Is it permissible in Islam for one to pray in his own dialect or language, even if he does not recite the prayer in Arabic? Uh, when a person becomes a Muslim, or when a child reaches the point where he's being taught the prayers, 
being taught this basic chapter of the Quran, the very first chapter known as Surah Al-Fatiha, which is in Arabic, with which, which forms the core of his prayer. If one does not know the Fatiha, the core prayer, one may say different words of remembrance of God, like Subhanallah, Walhamdulillah, you know, in the prayer, until one learns this much of the formal prayer. And the reason why the formal prayer is in Arabic, and is required of all Muslims to learn in Arabic, wherever they may be, is one, because the final revelation of God to man was in Arabic, and each Muslim is encouraged to learn something of that revelation. Furthermore, what we realize too is that when a Muslim goes, for example, to China, if the call to prayer was made in Chinese, then he would not know when the call to prayer had come, when the time for prayer had come. And if he happened to stumble across a mosque and go in there and the Chinese were praying and there's an imam who was Chinese leading the prayer, if he was leading the prayer in Chinese, they again would be lost. They wouldn't know what in the world was going on. So the Arabic, having the main body of the prayer in Arabic, provides a unifying factor for Muslims all over the world. Wherever they go, they may know when the time of prayer has come, they may join the local people in prayer, regardless of the language which the local people speak. question is raised here, since the placing of a grave inside of a mosque is prohibited in Islam, why wasn't the grave of the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, outside of the mosque? Well, what we should understand is that where the Prophet was buried originally was not inside the mosque. He was buried in the home of his wife Aisha. And after his death, whenever the following leaders of Islam, known as the Caliph, expanded the mosque, they expanded that mosque of the Prophet in all of the directions except in the direction in which the prophet was buried. However, after the time of the caliph, when some change took place in the leadership of Islam, where people uh, were not as vigilant in following the teachings of the prophet, may Allah peace and blessings be upon him, we found that one of the Umayyad caliphs I believe it was Marwan ibn Abdul Malik, 
expanded the mosque to include the house of Aisha. This was a mistake. And we would hope that at some time in the future this mistake would be corrected. But the grave itself, as I said, was not placed in the mosque by the companions of the Prophet, but the mosque, a section of the mosque was extended to include the grave by later generations of Muslims who did so in ignorance. Question, the practice of our forefathers in my country, in my country, is that they celebrate the birthday of our Prophet, Muhammad, Some scholars say it is an innovation, it is prohibited. Referred to in Arabic as Bidah. Could you please clarify this for us? Well, the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, had stated that any change or addition which is made in the religious practices which make up Islam, as he brought it, will be considered to be unacceptable innovation, that which would not be acceptable to God. And because of this, the early Muslims were very conscientious in fighting against any kind of innovation taking place within the practices of the religion. And this is one of the unique characteristics of Islam, which separates it from many of the other religions, in that if you were to look, for example, at Christianity and look at the practice of Jesus and his companions, and compare this practice to what people practice today in the name of Christianity, we would find that there is a vast difference. There have been many, many, many changes. All one has to do is to look in an encyclopedia at the history of the church and the history of uh, Christian theology, and one comes to the obvious conclusion that what people are practicing today in the name of Christianity was not what Jesus and his companions were practicing. There have been many, many innovations and changes. Whereas in the case of Islam, if we look at the basic practices of Muslims today, and you were to go back 1400 years to the time of the Prophet, Muhammad, may Allah keep the blessings be upon him, you would find that there is no difference. It is exactly the same. Whenever a people tries to make changes, those who are knowledgeable in Islam have tried to point out to the masses of people that these changes are incorrect, they are cursed by God, they are not acceptable to God. Among these changes is the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. May Allah's peace and blessings be upon him. What happened is that some ignorant Muslims at a particular point in time, some 400 years ago or 500 years ago, 
in some parts of the world, actually the earliest practice of it was known to have been in the Shiite uh, state, populist state in Egypt, where the practice of celebrating the birthday of the Prophet began. Muslims, in an attempt to compete with Christians, because Christians were celebrating the birthday of their Prophet, Muslims thought, well, Prophet Muhammad is as good if not better than Prophet Jesus, so why shouldn't we celebrate his birthday? This is ignorant. The Prophet Muhammad, may our peace and blessings be upon him, did not celebrate his birthday. Nor did he tell his companions to do so. Nor did his companions do so. To celebrate the birthday of the Prophet is to make an innovation in the religion of Islam. It is to add something to the religion which is not a part of it. And Allah says very clearly in the Quran, Al-Yawma Akmaltu Lakum Dinakum Today I have perfected for you your religion. Complete. The Prophet Muhammad said, Ma taraktu shay'an yukharribukum illallah illa wa amartikum bih. I have not left anything which will bring you closer to God, to Allah, except that I have commanded you to do it. So it means that we cannot devise make up anything which we consider will be pleasing to God, which will bring us closer to God, which was not brought by the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah speak and blessings be upon him. Because everything, every way that leads to God has been shown by the Prophet. And based on this principle, the practice of celebrating the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad now, let's be upon him, is considered to be bid'ah or a cursed innovation, not acceptable to God, but rejected by God. Question After the destruction of this world by God, where will be the location of paradise and hell? Well, God alone knows that. I would not pretend to be in a position to describe or to tell you where the location of paradise and hell is going to be. If God has not told us, then it is not for us even to speculate. Question. Is smoking haram? Smoking, that is smoking cigarettes. This is an area which some Muslims have had some confusion concerning. Wherein some people have said it is makhluk, that is, it is something which is disliked, but not something which is sinful. Whereas haram means that it is prohibited and therefore sinful for one to do so. In fact, when smoke, smoking, the practice of smoking cigarettes first entered into the Muslim world in the 16th century, when it came into Turkey, the scholars of that time attempted to make a ruling concerning it, because in Islam there is a religious ruling on everything. On everything that we can do, we can say, we can think about 
there is in Islam a religious ruling concerning it. This is a part of the comprehensiveness of Islam, that it touches every aspect of a human being's life. So the scholars of that time were obliged to make a ruling concerning it. Where does it fit in within the scheme of Islamic law? What they observed from it was that it created a bad breath, what is known as the smoker's breath. And anybody who is around those who smoke knows what the smoker's breath is. Now, smokers are usually not aware of the smoker's breath because they get used to it. But those who are in their presence know the horrible smell of the smoker's breath. So, the scholars of the time looked in the text of the Quran and in the Sunnah, the teachings of the Prophet, to find out what would be the ruling, the appropriate ruling for something which produces a horrible smell in breath. And they found a statement of the Prophet, may Allah speak and blessings be upon him, in which he said that those who eat raw onions and garlic should not come to our mind because of the foulness of the smell which comes from the mouth of one who eats raw garlic and onions. So it is something which was ruled as being makru or disliked. Not haram, it is not prohibited to eat garlic and onions, but to eat what it and to go into the mosque. Because you know when we close our prayer we turn from side to side and say Salaam Alaikum wa Rahmatullah. Now if a person has been eating garlic, when he says that he is harming his brother who is sitting beside him in prayer. So to avoid this harm, this foul breath, it was ruled his life, makri, for one to eat garlic and onion. Similarly, the scholars then made an analogy with the smoking and said, well, similarly, because smoking produces this foul breath, it is makri. However, 400 years have passed, and we now have new knowledge concerning smoking. The medical profession has stated unequivocally, without any doubt, that smoking produces cancer, and we know that cancer kills, therefore smoking kills. We have to look from another point of view now. So the Muslim scholars, when looking into the situation, they saw what the Prophet said concerning the killing of oneself. And he said that one who kills himself in this life will find himself killing himself over and over in the hell. Killing oneself in Islam, as in Christianity, is considered haram, prohibited, sinful. It is a sin. From the teachings of Moses, carried on by Prophet Jesus, carried on by Prophet Muhammad, the Lord's peace and blessings be on all of them. They all taught that to kill oneself is a sin, prohibited. So, scholars now rule that smoking is haram or sinful. So any sincere believing Muslim or sincere believing Christian would not smoke knowing that smoking kills because suicide is prohibited. 
And one may argue, well, when you smoke, you're not killing yourself, uh, like stabbing yourself with a knife or a patient poison. It's not the same thing. But if I were to say to you, listen, if you were to take a tea glass with only a few drops of poison, every day you drank that little bit, little bit, and after six months or after a year you died from it. Is that any different from taking a full glass and drinking it one time and dying from it? No. It is still suicide. When you take that substance, knowing that it will kill you, then your act is an act of suicide. There are substances, according to Islamic law, which may be in and of themselves halal or permissible, but for some people it may also be halal. For example, if you are a diabetic, if you are a diabetic and the doctor tells you, if you take sugar it will make you comatose and you will die. For you, taking sugar is simple. So, in summary, the Islamic position concerning smoking is that it is haram or prohibited, sinful. Uh, question, uh, why do Muslims, before they go to observe their formal prayers, why are they obliged to wash their body parts? Actually, if you go into the Bible, person will ask this, uh, obviously is a Christian. If you go into the Bible, you will find reference to ablution. Prophet Moses, Prophet Jesus, and the prophets before and between used to wash themselves before prayer. It is not something new which Islam brought. This was a part of the teachings of the prophets. That cleaning, washing of the hands and the face, the mouth, the feet. This cleaning is not merely a physical cleaning. It is not the main intent behind it. Part of it is cleaning, because you know, if the commander of the base sends a command for you to come and see him, and you are dirty, wearing your dirty clothes, what are you going to do? You're going to go and change your clothes because you're coming to stand before the commander of the day. Well, if uh, you feel that way, should you not feel that way even more so in the case of God? In fact, God has said in the Quran that we should take our best clothing when we go to prayer. And we try to present ourselves in the best manner when we stand in formal prayer. Of course, one may make informal prayer anytime, anywhere, without having to go through these acts of cleaning. But the act of cleaning is also uh, a training uh, ground for Muslims to maintain cleanliness, purity, keeping one clean, not only before God, but with his fellow worshippers. Because when Muslims pray, they pray very close together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And if one does not clean oneself properly, then there will be all kinds of smells coming from the people in their prayers. But as I said, fundamentally, the cleaning of oneself 
is a spiritual act. We go through the washing of the hands, the mouth, face, etc. But in doing so, we do so believing that we are preparing ourselves for the worship of God. We are bringing our mind and our spirit into a frame that we may worship God in the purest sense that we can. So, this is the requirement which has been prescribed in the final revelation, confirmed by the prophets, and it is in fact a confirmation of the teachings of the earlier prophets. It is not something which was brought by Islam you, but merely uh, I'd like to just thank you all for coming, and I hope that what has been discussed and presented has been of some benefit to you.